But uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to share the word. Are you ready to hear it? Come on. Go with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And I want to look at verses 23 through 28. And then we'll even go down into Mark chapter 3. But let's start at the gospel according to Mark chapter number 2. When you're ready to read it, say yeah. If you're not ready, say hold up. No holdups. Come on, you're ready. Those of you watching online, still in your bathrobe, I want you to lean in just like you're right here in the building. I believe God's going to speak to you uh, right where you are. Look at what it says. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry and in need, and in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time, we're down in chapter 3 now, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand, another version says withered hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. How many of you are believing for God to restore some things back to you? Come on, that were taken this year. His hand was completely restored restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began, watch this, to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Why even jump into this? Let's just state the obvious. This text fascinates me in that Jesus has just done a miracle in the sanctuary. He has healed a man with a withered hand. I imagine as soon as the man's hand got healed, the whole place just started turning up, just giving God praise with everything that was within them. Even the man, who by the way couldn't clap before, is now clapping, just having church. And while everybody's clapping, having a good time, having church, the Pharisees watch a miracle and left from the church meeting to figure out how they could kill Jesus for healing this man. This man's healing instigated the plot to put Jesus on the cross. I almost started to call this message like, when healing you is killing me. You know, from Jesus' perspective, but I'm not going to use that title. I, you know, I play around with my titles. I almost started to call this title for some of y'all that ain't been saved a long time and you frequent Vegas, um, you know, how, how to win with a bad hand. Anyway, but I think I'm going to title it something different today. I, I just want to title this message, Where Restoration Starts. Where Restoration Starts. I do believe God wants to restore some things in your life, but I want to talk about where restoration starts. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your presence. God, I pray you would speak to your people today, wherever they are in this room, 
Lord, at another campus watching right now in the kitchen, in the living room. Thank you that your presence knows no limits and knows no bounds. So speak to our hearts and Lord, let us be transformed by the power of the revelation that is in your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, come on, everybody said, amen, where restoration starts. One of the things that I've said repeatedly since churches have been regathering and reopening is how absolutely awesome it is to be able to worship together. Oh, come on. I love being able to worship together. I can worship anywhere, but it's much better to worship with other believers. This year has solidified in my heart, in my mind, that the church is not optional. The church is essential. Oh, come on, somebody. The church is essential. There is something powerful about lifting up the name of Jesus with other believers. And I love it. Even y'all that sing off key. I love being able to worship with you. Not only that, I enjoy being able to preach and see the faces of the people that I'm preaching to. Oh, I love seeing your face. I don't care if you got a mask on. Some of y'all are smiling and I can see you smiling at me with your eyes. I love being able to see your face. Don't get me wrong. It is lonely on this stage. Just me and the Christmas trees. It's lonely up here, but it's not as lonely as it was when the pandemic first hit and I was speaking in empty sanctuaries in an abyss of darkness with just a cameraman in the back praying that my jokes were landing on the other side of that camera. Ooh, I didn't like it. I thank God to have faces in the place. I'm glad your face is here. And just on that same trajectory of thought, it got me thinking because I can see your face that I actually have a vantage point that nobody else in this room has. You realize that, right? Because I can see you. You can see me. If I look at the screen, I can see me. But what's interesting is you can't see yourself. I want you to think about that just for a minute. Like you have no idea what you look like right now. Like you know what you look like when you left the house. You know what you look like if you stopped in the bathroom in the lobby, but you don't know what you look like right now. Some of y'all, I know you don't know what you look like right now. You cannot see yourself. In fact, when I had the cameraman earlier zoom in on my little baby gray hairs that are coming in on my face, I had them zoom in. How many of you know that gray hairs could have been popping up in your head or on your face while he was zooming in on mine but you wouldn't have seen your gray hairs because you were zoomed in on my gray hairs because you can't see yourself. I think that's a principle to think about in life. The reality that you cannot see yourself because many of us want God, hear me, to restore things in our lives but God cannot restore that which you cannot recognize. God can't restore the things that you are unaware of, that you have no idea that actually need to be restored. Because before there can ever be change in your life, how many know there must be awareness of the change that needs to come? Oh, you have to be aware. Self-awareness precedes all change in our lives. In fact, that's what we lost in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve took of that forbidden fruit and jacked up the world, we lost awareness. That's why when God found them, the first question God asked Adam and Eve after they sinned was not, how are you? He asked them, where are you? Where are you? Because you've lost awareness. You cannot see yourself. I'll never forget talking to an influential leader. And I was asking this leader some questions about leadership. And he was giving me nugget after nugget of all these questions and things that he learned in leadership. Then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, Robert, as a leader, there's a question that I often ask my staff, my team. 
He said, I asked this question of my wife. I asked it of my friends. He said, this question has been paramount to successful leadership. I said, man, what's the question? He said, I look at them and I ask, what is it like to be on the other side of me? What is it like to be on the other side of me? He said, because that is the only thing I don't have perspective on. I don't know what it's like to work for me. I don't know what it's like to be married to me. I said, I have to ask them, what is it like to be on the other side of me? He said, and then I have to sit back and have the humility of heart to hear what they say and not get offended and not get an attitude and listen to what it's like to be on the other side of me because I can't see myself. This is for those of y'all who dismissing this message right now. You're like, I don't need that word. I'm good. I'm a good husband. How do you know? You've never been married to yourself. I'm a good wife. I don't know what his problem is. How do you know? You've never been married to yourself. I don't know what's wrong with these kids. I'm a good parent. How do you know? You have never been a parent to yourself. You've never been a boss to yourself. You haven't worked for you. You ought to put an intercom in the break room. You'll find out for real what it's like to be on the other side of you. And this is the power of community. This is the power of encountering God because when you encounter God and you come into community and if you can have humility of heart how many know you'll begin to see the things in your life that need to be transformed that need to be changed that God can actually restore oh but it won't start until you become aware and I found that it's so much easier to look at everybody else's life and see what they need to fix and what they need to not post and what they need to do that you never place the lens of your life on you. Oh, in fact, let me say it like a preacher. How many know it's much better to look in a mirror at yourself than to look at a microscope at other people? Oh, people love microscopes, don't they? Oh, let me tell you what's wrong with you. Yeah, I can tell you in detail what's wrong with you. But nobody wants to pull a Michael Jackson whoo, and just look at the man in the mirror and see what is wrong with me. And this was the problem in my text with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were proficient at microscopes. They were so good at looking at other people, but they could not ever look in the mirror and see themselves. This was the problem with the Pharisees. In fact, if you look at the word Pharisee, P-H-A-R-I-C-I-S-E-E-I-C, because that's what they were always doing. I see what's wrong with you, but they could never see what was wrong with them. This was the problem with the Pharisees. And every time they would encounter Jesus, he would always show them who they were and they couldn't stand. It. They couldn't take it. That was the problem with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the star of my text today because every time they encountered Jesus, a problem would break out. A problem would break out. They were Jesus antagonists. And I love preaching about the Pharisees, especially in church, because the people that regularly go to church, whenever we read a passage like this, we don't ever think we're like the people in the Bible who always went to church. The Pharisees were the people that would have been in service at people's church every time the doors are open. And it's funny to me that the people that come to church, when they read the Bible, we don't ever think that we are the people that regularly came to church. Come on, you know you have never read the Bible and typecast yourself as the Pharisee. Come on, you read the Bible and you're like, no, nah, I'm the woman with the issue of blood. Now nah, I'm the dude with the blind eyes and Jesus, I just need you to help me see some things because you know 2020, I hadn't seen much this year. It's not what I picture. We never see ourselves as the Pharisees. Isn't it funny? The people that come to church don't see 
see themselves like the people in the Bible that always went to church. So maybe another question you ought to ask is not only what is it like to be on the other side of me, but is there some Pharisee in me that I don't see? Because you can't see yourself. And the Pharisees could never see themselves. This was their issue. In fact, here was their issue with Jesus. It was a lot. The first issue they had with Jesus was simply they were jealous of Jesus. That's really what it was. They were jealous of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was effective. And how many of you can testify today that whenever you are effective at what you do, please believe folks are going to get jealous. Oh, y'all not going to help me talk in church today. Come on, some of y'all sitting around some people who are jealous. I'm telling you, when you are effective at doing what God has called you to do, just expect people to get jealous. They cannot help it. It's a part of being effective. In fact, sometimes the sign that you are doing what God has called you to do is that people are jealous, is that people are critical of you. Stop whining and complaining about people that are getting jealous of you. Sometimes it's just proof positive that you're doing the thing that God put you on this earth to do and you're doing it good. One writer once said that jealousy is the trophy that mediocrity gives to excellence. I'm going to say it again so you can tweet it. Jealousy is the trophy that mediocrity gives to excellence. Sometimes when you're doing what God has called you to do, people will get jealous. They're going to say something sideways. Don't get mad about it. You ought to just celebrate and say, ooh, that's a sign. I must be doing what God has called me to do. If you don't want critics, if you don't want people being negative about you, then say nothing, be nothing, and do nothing. But if you step into the effulgence of your purpose and the thing God put you on this earth to do, people will get jealous. So the Pharisees were jealous. That was one issue. Another issue they had was the claims that Jesus made because Jesus was claiming to be the son of the living God. He was not claiming to just be a good man. He was claiming to be a God man, to be God manifested in the flesh. And the Pharisees knew where he came from. And you know how people are. You were just with your family. When people know where you came from, and every time God starts blessing you, they quick to remind you, oh, now don't act brand new. Yeah, that's a cute car, but I remember when I had to pick you up. People love to remind you of where you came from. And they said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. There's no way you're the son of God. Another issue they had with Jesus was that Jesus, Jesus had a reputation for hanging out with people that had bad reputations. You notice that Jesus was always hanging out with shady, jacked up, dysfunctional, broken people. Jesus was always kicking it with people that had a record. I'm talking about had bad records. I'm talking about records that would have made TMZ and Shade Room. That's, he was always with those people. That's why I'm always confused, especially in our culture today, when I see somebody that is tragically killed or injustice towards somebody, and all of a sudden people want to throw up their record as if their life didn't matter. You better be careful whose record you start throwing up because first of all you got a record and you serve a God that was always hanging out with people that had messed up records Ooh, I'm telling you they had issues with Jesus but guess what the Pharisees biggest issue with Jesus was this is what got him on the cross their biggest issue was that Jesus he wouldn't stop doing stuff on the Sabbath that was their big issue. We read it in the text today. Their biggest issue was that Jesus wouldn't stop doing stuff on the Sabbath because the Pharisees did not play with the Sabbath. Oh, they were given a commandment from God to honor the Sabbath 
and to keep it holy. And God did implement the Sabbath. Come on, you know he created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested to Sabbath. It means to cease. He says to rest from all work. The problem is he didn't say what type of work to rest from. So the Pharisees thought it was their duty to start adding to the law of God and say, no, that's work. You can't do this. You can't do that. They love to take the Sabbath seriously and they could not stand that Jesus kept doing stuff on the Sabbath. Oh, they didn't play with the Sabbath. In fact, still today, Jews don't play with the Sabbath. I learned this the hard way. I went to Israel because um, I wanted to walk where Jesus walked. I'll never forget going to Israel. And uh, we were walking around, perusing the Holy Land. And it was hot. It was hot in Israel. So I was drinking water all day, all day, just trying to stay hydrated. And uh, I missed the bathroom stop. And here we are getting back to the hotel. And I got to go. And so I pushed people off the bus. And I'm running back into our hotel. And the elevator opens. And I go on the elevator. I think I was like on the eighth floor. And I hit the eight button. It didn't light up. But the door closed. That elevator, I kid you not, stopped on the first floor. Stopped on the second floor. It stopped on the third floor. It stopped on the fourth floor. It stopped on the fifth floor. On the sixth floor, I just passed out. I woke up. It stopped on the seventh floor. And ain't none of your business what happened on the seventh floor. And then it stops on the eighth floor. I finally get off the elevator. I run into my room. I go to the restroom. I come back. I catch the same elevator on the way back. It stopped all the way down. Oh, I'm telling you, I had an attitude. I had an attitude. I said, I need to talk to the manager of this hotel. I paid a whole lot of money to walk where Jesus walk and y'all can't fix the elevator it's stopping on every floor I was like where is the manager somebody from our crew was like Robert what's wrong I said I need to talk to the manager I said that elevator stopped on every floor he said oh Robert it's the Sabbath I said I don't care what day it is I said why did the elevator stop on every floor they said Robert that's that's the Shabbat elevator I said I don't care if it's the Shazam elevator I said it stopped on every floor and this hotel is not cheap they said no 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 no. you don't understand that's the Shabbat elevator this is the Sabbath to touch a button on the elevator would be work. The Sabbath must be kept holy. So that's why it stopped on every single floor. I said, are you serious? They said, yeah. You understand, Jews back then and the Pharisees took it to a whole nother level. They started adding rules to the Sabbath. They said you could only take 1,199 steps. If you took that next step after 1,199, you were breaking the Sabbath and you were working. They said if you threw something up in the air, you couldn't catch it with this hand because that's work. You had to catch it with the other hand. This is what religion does. It adds rules and regulations that God never meant to intend to be put on his people. They had all kinds of, you couldn't write a letter on the Sabbath. You couldn't light a candle on the Sabbath. You couldn't blow out a candle on the Sabbath. You couldn't wash your hair on the Sabbath because if water fell on the ground, you would have to clean up the water and that would be working. You couldn't do any of that. You couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair and try to pull the gray hair out and that would be work. They had all kinds of rules and you sure couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. You couldn't bring restoration to anybody on the Sabbath. And look at Jesus. They got all these rules, all these regulations. You can't do this. You can't sit here. And here comes Jesus in the middle of all of their rules. Talking about what? You telling me I can't heal? You telling me that I can't save? You telling me that I can't redeem? I want to talk to somebody who thinks that God is in heaven waiting for you to break the rules so he can hit you upside the head. No, no, no. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible says, I will break rules to make sure you get out of the stuff you're in. I will break rules to redeem you. I will break rules to restore you. I will break rules to make sure that your life is lived to the fullest. He broke rules and I love it because they couldn't stand 
that he kept doing stuff on the Sabbath. And it was like Jesus would heal on the Sabbath just to agitate them. Ooh, can I take you through the Bible? You remember Luke chapter 13? Remember there's a woman who has a spirit of infirmity who's been bent over for 18 years? Can you imagine 18 years of walking like this? Not just pain in your body, but dealing with the spirit of infirmity for 18 years until one day she encounters Jesus and Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, be healed. He sets her free with one word and then he touches her body and immediately she stands up straight and I'm thankful for a God that will heal you inside and out. He'll deal with the spiritual issue and he'll deal with the physicality of the issue because he's that thorough. He healed her completely and that woman stood straight up after 18 years. Only problem was he healed her on the Sabbath. Do you remember John chapter 5? John chapter 5, the Bible says that there is this pool. It's the pool of Bethesda. And every so often an angel would come down and stir the waters of this pool. And all kinds of sick and broken people would be around this pool. And if you got in the water first, after the angel stirred the water, you would be healed and restored. And the Bible says there was a man who for 38 years... A paralyzed man for 38 years sat by that pool, but somebody would always get in front of him and he would never get his healing or his breakthrough for 38 years until Jesus approached him and said, hey, do you want to get well? Now here's a preacher confession. I pray this sermon is not on YouTube, but when I was like 19, I preached that passage. I preached that passage, and I preached it with an attitude, because I was mad at this dude. I said, homie, 38 years? Come on, 38 years? You couldn't get a breakthrough after 38 years? I said, come on, bro. 38 years, you could at least wiggle your way close by the water. And then when the angel came down, just, just drop in. I had no compassion on the dude. In fact, I preached. I preached that Jesus asked him with an attitude, do you want to get well? That's how I preached it, like Jesus is annoyed with the people that he's about to heal. That's how I preached it, because at 19, I was like, yo, how are you going to have an issue for 38 years, man? Come on, you should have your life together by 38. Ooh. Now I'm, I'm getting close. I'm next year, 38. Now I got so much compassion on no dude because I know how hashtag jacked up I am. And I know what it's like to have some issues to say, God, I'm still working on this. Please have patience with me. Oh, y'all going to sit up there and look religious like you ain't got some stuff that you still been coming to God. <laughs> say, yeah, I'm still working on this one right here. Yeah. 38 years, Jesus didn't ask you with an attitude. Can you see your compassionate Savior going, I know you feel like some people got in front of you. I know you feel like years have been wasted, but it's never too late when I show up. Do you want to get well? No, for real, because today's the day. Do you want to get well? Healed that man. He didn't have to get in any pool. Healed him completely, said, take up your mat and walk. Homeboy gets up for the first time, grabs his mat and starts walking away. Only problem was he was walking and he got healed on the, on the Sabbath. I don't want to give you too much Bible, but you remember John chapter 9. There's another story of a man who was born blind. And Jesus and his disciples approach this man who's been born blind. And the disciples, the Jesus followers, asked the most ridiculous, stupid, asinine question. They said, Jesus, what caused this man to be born blind? They don't wait to let God actually respond. They say, um, who sinned? Him or his parents? Who sinned? Which one? And Jesus goes, neither. 
Neither. How are you going to reduce it to those two categories? Neither. In fact, I don't know what the message translation says. He says, y'all asking the wrong question. Isn't it funny how they immediately wanted to connect his suffering to his personal sin? To think that there was something you did or your mama did or your daddy did for you to be in this situation. He said, hold on, this hasn't, his suffering has nothing to do with his personal sin. And somebody needs to hear that word today. Now, sometimes your suffering is a direct result of your personal sin. Oh, let's keep it 100. Sometimes you're like, oh, I don't understand why I'm going through this. The devil is attacking. Now, boo-boo, that was you. You made a decision. You texted him back. Devil didn't do that, okay? You said, go ahead, come over. It's been lonely during quarantine. You, you sent that text. So sometimes, hello, sometimes suffering is a direct result of your own decision, of your own personal sin, but that is not always the case because look at what Jesus says. He says, neither. His suffering has nothing to do with his personal sin. He said, this situation is so that the glory of God may be revealed in him. How many of you know there's some stuff you're going through that is simply so the glory of God could be revealed in your life? Come on, I know you don't like 2020, but you're going to look back over 2020 and start thanking God about 2020 because how many of you know he's getting the glory out of your life? He's getting the glory out of situations. Oh, how does he get the glory? Because I lost my job, but somehow I'm still making it. Somehow I'm still surviving. I still ate a meal on Thanksgiving. I'm not down yet. Yes, I lost some stuff, but I still got a pulse. I still got a purpose. God's not through with me yet. Some of y'all are too quiet for me. Somebody needs to give God some praise because you know he's going to get the glory out of the situation you're in. Oh, that's the best praise you got. I dare you to praise right in the devil's face and say, God is going to get the glory out of this year. I'm going to have a testimony after this year. I'm going to shout in 2021 because of what he brought me through in 2020. Hallelujah. I shout myself. Are y'all recording it? I'm going to watch it later. Some stuff you're going through is simply for God to get the glory out of it. For people to look at your life and say, oh yeah, there has to be a God. Because there's no way you could have gone through that. There is no way that type of hell could have come in your life. And you still got your mind? He said this happened so that this man could have the glory of God revealed in his life. Jesus spit in the ground because sometimes your miracle will get nasty. Put mud pie in his eyes. Told him to go wash. Healed a man who was born blind and for the first time that man could see the only problem was Jesus healed him on the Sabbath so the Pharisees couldn't take it so he won't stop it keeps healing people on the Sabbath so they start following Jesus to make sure he'll stop it so we're gonna watch him closely because that's what they do I'm a fear I see Make sure you don't heal anybody else on the Sabbath and breaking our traditions and breaking our laws. We read in the text, the Bible says they start stalking Jesus and his disciples. Literally, stalk, they're in a grain field with stalks of grain. They're literally stalking. I work so hard at these jokes to make some of y'all just crack a smile in church. Can you see, can you see the Pharisees just like stalking just? Watching them, hiding, look so stupid, just hiding, watch. I love it because they're following Jesus. They're literally following him, but they don't like him. 
They're they following them and they don't like them. They're following them and they don't like them. Some of you miss your place to shout because you know the Bible is for today. I don't understand why are you following people you don't like? If you don't like me, why are you on my page giving your public opinion from your private page that don't got a profile picture? If you, if you don't like me, why are you following me? Hit unfollow. They don't like them. They following. They're watching. And I want you to see religion and legalism. Look at how tense it is. Shh, shh, be quiet. Following Jesus. First relationship and discipleship and just being in the presence of Jesus. They're hiding behind grain. The disciples are chilling with Jesus. Talking about, man, Jesus, you were preaching today, man. That was a good sermon. You preached all lot. We didn't even get to eat, man. And Jesus is like, you know, in the grain field, get you some. Like, for real? He's like, yeah, come on. They grabbing grain. Talking about, man, we just love being with you, Jesus, man. We love it. We love it. Just having a good time. Because how many you know this kingdom is about joy? That's why I have fun when I preach. That's why I smile when I preach. Because this kingdom is about joy. That's why we're preaching the good news. And some of you need to get your joy back this year. How many you know joy is is not happiness. Happiness has to do with what happens in your life. But how many know you can choose to rejoice? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I make a decision to rejoice in spite of what I'm going through. They're just having a good time, eating grain. And as soon as they chew the grain, here come the Pharisees. Ah! I see you. Don't you know? They're like, well, y'all following us the whole time? Yeah, we were. Don't you know it's unlawful for you to eat the grain on the Sabbath? And I love it because I can almost see Peter and the disciples like their mouth is full of grain. They're like, they don't even know what to say. And Jesus is like, calm down. Come just back up. I, I got it. I got it. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is just keep your mouth shut. Let the Lord fight your battles. Let him speak for you. Don't write on their wall. Don't lose your cool. Don't reply back to the message. Sometimes the best thing you can say is just nothing. Keep eating. You still got some leftovers. Keep eating. Don't say anything back. And Jesus steps in. And he goes, have you not read? Have you not read when David and his men ate the consecrated bread that was only reserved for the temple? Haven't you read that? He's calling them back to a moment where David took the bread that was reserved for the high priest. But David had been in battle and he was hungry. And he ate some of the bread that was reserved for the high priest and he fed himself and he fed his companions. Why? Because there was no other place for him to get food. And yes, that bread was reserved for the high priest. That was the rule. That was the tradition. But in that moment, David's hunger and the hunger of his companions had to take priority. So Jesus is reminding them of this story saying, you know all the scripture. You know the book, but you don't know the author. You know the letter of the law, but you've lost the spirit of the law. So I'm going to remind you of a verse that you read, but you forgot the proper interpretation. That you never trample on people to uphold a tradition. That people come before your programs. That you got to have compassion for people more than your concern with the code and conduct. That's what I came for. I came for people. And you have elevated your tradition so high that you're trampling on people. 
putting stuff on them that they were never meant to carry got them stressing to keep the holy day the sabbath holy going oh did i take a thousand steps or 99 steps oh my goodness can i light a candle god said i didn't intend that i didn't mean that when i said keep the sabbath holy you've added your tradition to my word trying to get them to see who he came for they still didn't see it so i love it he takes them from the illustration in the grain field into the synagogue now he's in the synagogue it's still the sabbath and he's preaching in the synagogue and i love it because i can see the pharisees scoping the sanctuary then i listen to the sermon they're looking for broken people because they know that jesus has a weakness that there's if there is somebody that is broken if there's somebody that is hurting he's gonna heal him he can't help himself He's going to do something about it. So I can see the Pharisees scanning the crowd looking for jacked up, broken people going, okay, come on. He got both of his eyes. Yeah, no, he's good. I'm trying to see who's messing. Can you see them? They're looking for broken people because they're trying to trap them. That's what the text is. They're trying to trap Jesus. So I can see them scanning the sanctuary for jacked up people knowing that Jesus is going to do something about it. See, this is why I wholeheartedly believe you got to have some broken, jacked up people in the sanctuary. Please believe the church is not for perfect people people when do we get this twisted this is supposed to be a place for hurting people for broken people you're supposed to have some people that got to step out a little bit in worship because they need a cigarette break you need some people that you smell their breath and you're like oh somebody had a little Hennessy this morning you need to have those people in church when did the church become a place to come in and try to hide your issues this is a place where if you're hurting and you're broken you can find healing and restoration this is what our God does he restores you're not supposed to come in here and act like you got it all together so I can see him scanning looking for the broken looking for the ones who need things restored and I think he walked in late think he walked in like this and sat in the back and as soon as he walked in one of the Pharisees says oh there he is we got one I said who are you talking about him right there you see him they're like who is that that's Willie Willie you know Willie Willie with the withered hand that's him that's Willie I said I can't see it yeah he always hides it when he comes in this temple yeah that's his hand he, he got a withered hand that's Will I know Willie that's Willie with a withered hand and some of y'all laughing but it's not funny because that's what church people do have you noticed people love to define you by your deficit they love to define you by your dysfunction they'll say oh yeah you know Ashley yeah eighth husband oh yeah you know her people will love to put a label on you they will define you by a dysfunction isn't it crazy they called him the man with the withered hand he only had one withered hand he, that means he still had another good hand they didn't call him the man with one good hand they didn't call him the man with two good legs or two good eyes no people love to define you by a dysfunction that's Willie with the withered hand and he walks in and I think he learned to hide it I don't think he came in expecting Jesus to heal him after all this isn't a blind eye this isn't a deaf ear how many know you can live with the withered hand your life might be hindered but you can still live with it how many know God wants to restore the thing you've learned to live with the thing you've learned to say this is the way my life is this is the way it'll always be that you have even lost the hope of God restoring it you've lost the hope of him restoring it and God said no I want to deal with that I can see him 
I can see him hiding it. It's interesting when it says it's a withered hand or a shriveled hand. That, that word in the Greek is the perfect past tense, which lets us know this man's hand was not born withered. He had an accident. Something, we don't know what it was, but something happened in his past that now has residue in his present and is still affecting him. But he's learned to live with it. And he's hiding it. And I can see a showdown of eyes. I can see the Pharisees looking at Willie and I can see Jesus looking at the Pharisees and I can see Jesus looking at Willie and I can see the Pharisees looking at Jesus like you better not it's the Sabbath don't you don't you better not heal him and I can see Jesus going oh you don't think I will with his eyes oh you don't think I will this is what I do okay all of a sudden calls him out Willie makes him stand in front of everybody and I love this scene because after he makes him stand in front of everybody he then looks at the Pharisees and asks them a critical question he says is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath to save a life or to heal a life or to destroy a life simple question is it lawful to do good or to do evil to save a life or destroy a life it's only one way to answer that question. And this is what Jesus did. He was making the complex simple. Give me a yes or no. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Yes or no. He was making the complex simple. See, the Pharisees inverted it. They made the simple complex and started adding things to the law. But you serve a God that came to make the complex simple. Come on, all those laws, the Ten Commandments. He said, yes, I'm the God of those Ten Commandments. But how many are thankful for a God that took all those Ten Commandments down to two? if you can't do the 10 well then do these two number one love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and then love your neighbor as yourself you making it more complicated than it's supposed to be just get those two right he made the complex simple which one is it lawful to do good or evil save a life or destroy one and they remained silent silent they couldn't say anything And Jesus was so angry at their stubborn hearts. And this is how you know you're a Pharisee. Because Pharisees love to get loud about certain issues, but then they're quiet about other issues. Come on, Pharisees. You were real loud about them picking heads of grain when they were going through the grain field. But now you ain't got nothing to say about a man who's got a withered hand, who's hurting and broken. You're real loud about all the traditions and all the rules, but you don't have anything to say about somebody who is hurting and broken because Pharisees love to pick what they want to be loud about and what they want to be quiet about and they remain silent and Jesus is using the healing of this man watch this as an illustration for the Pharisee's heart you understand God has all power He can heal you any kind of way. He could have blinked his eyes and made that man's hand be healed. He could have just told him, boom, it's healed. No, no, no. Every miracle is a parable. It is a story. The way Jesus heals a person is teaching you something. And you know what he is trying to show the Pharisees? That yes, this man has a withered hand. Yes, he has a hard hand. But his hand is a picture of your heart. He's got a withered hand, but you got a withered heart. And his heart is a picture of your, his hand is a picture of your heart because how many know your heart and your hand are connected anything you're going to do with your hand it starts
starts in your heart. Come on, that's where restoration starts. It starts in your heart before it ever manifests in your hand. So what he was trying to get the Pharisees to do is what he got that man to do. He said, stretch forth the thing that has become so withered, the thing that has become so hard. What he got the man to do with his hand, he was trying to get them to do with their hearts. He said, your heart has gotten so hard and you need to stretch it to have compassion for people. He was trying to get him. He said, stretch forth your hand. Look at Jesus commanding a man to stretch forth a hand that's been withered for so long. Come on, Jesus. How are you going to ask me to stretch it forth? If I could stretch it, I would have stretched it years ago, but it's not going to work. He said, no, no, no. There's a difference. I'm commanding you to stretch forth your hand. And how many know with every commandment God gives you, there's always empowerment within the commandment. Come on, he wouldn't tell you to walk on the water if it wasn't possible to walk on water. He wouldn't tell you to start that business in the midst of a pandemic if it wasn't possible for the business to thrive. He will tell you to do something that it doesn't seem like you can do. But if he's commanding you to do it, the power is in your obedience to the command. And he stretched and his hand was restored. His hand was restored. But he was trying to use his hand as an illustration to the Pharisees about their hard hearts. Because whenever God wants to start restoration, it doesn't necessarily start in the thing that looks so obvious, your hand. It'll always start in your heart. Where does restoration start? It starts in your heart. I'm going to ask every head be bowed, all eyes be closed today because I believe 2020 is the year of heart surgery. God wants to heal some things in our heart before it ever manifests in our hand. I'm thankful for government. I'm thankful for the ability to vote. I'm thankful for democracy and all that. But how many know if we're looking to the systems of the world to bring change? My goodness, we'll be hopeless. But if we would allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts, it'll be amazing to see what happens through our hands. I didn't even say this first, but somebody even right now, this miracle offering in the midst of this crazy economy, somebody, God's speaking to you to sow into that miracle offering. It's never about the amount. It's always about your heart because there's something about sowing. It's something about trusting being released in your heart that changes what's in your hand. And that's your response to this message, to obey in that. Some of you have been asking God to fix something that you see that's in your hand, but God's saying, no, I want to go deeper and get to the issues of your heart because restoration starts in your heart. Father, do that today heal what needs to be healed in our hearts in Jesus name amen